Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. This episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talk about this recent report that came out toward the tail end of 2019 outlining the 2020 CDRH regulatory science priorities. We dive into some of the details and share some insights on how this information might be helpful to you as a medical device professional. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, maybe you've heard this a time or two by now as uh, we're recording this. It's uh, hard to believe, but uh, we're almost one twelfth of the way through the year 2020 already. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess, as they say. Today, it's a little timely because you know, there was a report came out recently, within a few months or so ago, on the CDRH regulatory science priorities. And I realized that neither uh, Mike Drews nor I have talked about this on an episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, and I thought we would dive into that. So, Mike, welcome to another episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. All right. So, and, and folks, I'll um, share a couple links to the information that we're talking about and the text that accompanies the podcast. But every so often, CDRH puts out a list of their priorities. And, and this one is uh, the 2020 priorities and it came out uh, toward the tail end of 2019. So, Mike, I guess first uh, reaction, or and I guess it's not your first reaction, but for the listening audience, first time they're hearing your reaction, any ahas or, or surprises on what was listed as the priorities for 2020? Yeah, great question, John. And again, uh, happy to New Year to our audience as well. It's a great question to start because what I was surprised when I read through this um, current version of the report is, in fact, how little I was surprised about. Just to give our audience a little historical context John, so the current version of this report, as you said, is 2020. It was just released at the end of 2019. Prior to that, there was a version of this report out in 2016 and then a follow-up in 2017. There was no report in 2018 or 19, so I guess FDA took a little bit of a hiatus for a couple of years. But I did sort of a comparison, a historical comparison, a, a retrospective study, if you will, comparing the current report to the previous two. Long story short, of the top 10 priorities that I, FDA have identified in the current 2020 version, eight of the 10 are exactly the same as what's in the 2016 and 2017 reports. And before we talk about what's in the current report, I thought it would be interesting to note what is not in the current report that was in the past. One of the priorities in the past in both the 2016 and 2017 report was the challenges of reprocessing reusable medical devices. And as you know, John, we, we did you know discussions on this before. We have. From the, uh, the tragedy at UCLA and a few other places where a few people died because, in this case, duodenoscopes, a type of endoscope, was not reprocessed properly. And as a result, 
there was cross-contamination between patients, and, and again, people died. So that was a priority in 2016 and 2017. It apparently is not a priority today. What does that mean to us, John? Does that mean that we've solved this problem? I don't think so. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was in the 2016 report, but not in the 2017 or the 2020 report, is human factors or usability, something that you and I have talked about many times in the past. So once again, does that imply that you know all of our devices are uh, user-friendly, so to speak? I don't think so, because I don't know about you, John, but I think that we still struggle, a lot of companies struggle with the concept of usability and human factors and ergonomics. So those are a couple of things that were not in the uh, current version before we talk about what's in the current version, John. Any thoughts on uh, the historical perspective? So first thought on the topic of reprocessing, folks, if you uh, dig way back in the archives of the Global Medical Device Podcast, and if my memory serves correctly. I think the very first episode we ever did on the Global Medical Device Podcast uh, several years ago was on reprocessing. So dig back into the archives, as they say, to review that. But it is interesting. I mean, just a couple short years ago, or or even more recent than that, frankly, uh, it seemed like these are super hot. I mean, reprocessing, that's that's always going to be a hot topic, especially to your point, you know, some of the challenges, the big, big challenges that the industry was faced with. So it is a little bit curious as to why that's no longer a focus. And human factors, I mean, you and I have talked about that both on the podcast as well as just in uh, normal conversations that you and I have quite often. And I know it's a topic of confusion and it seems like, I guess, everything that I'm hearing from a regulatory perspective is that the expectation for usability in human factors is more of a priority now than it ever has been. So those are a little bit curious why they they fell off the uh, the 2020 priorities. Well, let me offer a possible explanation as to why they are not listed as current priorities. Not to be cynical, but I think the answer is actually quite simple. We haven't had any high profile, meaning it hasn't showed up on NBC News or CNN of uh, medical devices killing people because they haven't been reprocessed properly. Um, You know, as you alluded to, that was a few years ago. And on the human factor side, we haven't had any recent high profile reports. I won't mention specific names of companies or devices, but for example, in robotic assisted surgery, there's been a number of medical devices where clearly there are usability issues that has caused problems. Anyway, we haven't seen those kinds of problems being reported in the popular press, but I can just about guarantee, John, if and when those things resurface, and I think, you know, not to be cynical, but I think it's likely to happen, uh, then don't be surprised to see them back on FDA's priority list because regrettably our industry and especially the regulatory component of it is a very reactive as opposed to proactive kind of an industry. And so, you know, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> anyway, maybe we should focus on uh, what yeah. is in the current list of priorities. I guess for the sake of uh, those that may not have the the documentation or the information in front of them, let me quickly rattle off the current 2020 priorities. And those are, in no particular order, I guess, yeah, no particular order. I thought it was by alphabetical at first, but it is not. So big data, biocompatibility, real world evidence, clinical performance, clinical trial design, computational modeling, digital health and cybersecurity, 
healthcare and associated infections, patient input, and then the last on the list is precision medicine and biomarkers. So, Mike, you said that two of these, or you said eight of these are not new. They've been in previous priority reports from CDRH. So which are the the two that were brand new to the list? Well, that's a good question, John. So you're right. Eight of them are, in fact, in both of the previous reports that you mentioned towards the end, reduction of healthcare-associated infections. That was not listed in the 2017 report. It was listed in 2016. So apparently that was a priority in 2016, but not 2017. And now, again, it's, it's listed today. And then similarly, the idea of precision medicine, which would include, among other things, not just uh, what they mentioned here, biomarkers and so on, but personalized devices like 3D printed devices, which is, I think, a gross oversight not to include that here. That was listed also in 2016, but not 2017. So I don't know, FDA doesn't provide any explanation as to uh, what has shown up in the past versus changes today, but I just think it's an interesting thing to note. Yeah, it is. So I guess curious of these areas of priority. Uh, I don't know if this is the right way to ask the question, but which is your favorite and why? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, John. If you were going to ask me which is my favorite, there are a few that I would like to talk to brief- briefly about, but probably my my favorite would be biocompatibility and real-world evidence. So maybe we'll we'll talk about those okay. two real quick. So biocompatibility has been a priority for FDA in the last three of these reports. But the question is, what has really changed? For example, as some of your audience know, FDA just in the last year or so has put out more and more material-specific guidance documents. We've never had material-specific guidance documents up until just a few years ago. Now we have a specific guidance document on nitinol and some of the polymers and so on. Once again, why? I think it's because of the problems that have been associated with certain medical devices made out of nitinol and so on. But let me say it this way, John, as as you and your audience know, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being biomaterials and biocompatibility. This is one of the reasons why you asked me, which is my favorite. That's why one of the reasons why I picked this one. But FDA from time to time shares with me uh, some guidance documents prior to them going out for comment. And some of the material guidances fit in that category. And so, for example, when I read the nitinol guidance, I my response back to the FDA was, gee, there's nothing in here that was yeah. not in my biomaterials textbook as a graduate student 30 years ago. Yeah. And they said, you know what, Mike, you're right. We agree with you. But it's amazing how many people don't know that. And so call me naive, John, but when it comes to something like biocompatibility, I would like to think that before somebody starts putting a medical device inside of a patient, for example, they might ask themselves the question, is the body going to react with this in some way? So I have no problem with it being a priority, but to me, there's nothing new here. Yeah. I mean, I I go back to day one of my medical device career, which you know, now spans a little over 21 years and biocompatibility was front and center, top priority then. And I'm sure even long before I even started the career, to your point, dating back to 30 years ago and your biomaterials coursework. So yeah, it's, it seems to me that, you know, and I guess it's, it's a curiosity thing. And as you were sharing some of your thoughts on the biocompatibility item, I was thinking, so what, what is this priority list 
mean to me as a med device professional? And we can tackle that here in a moment. The other item that you uh, was of interest to you was real world evidence. And uh, I don't want to speculate. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about this, but why is, is that uh, sort of an area of intrigue for you? Well, great question, John. And if you don't mind, before digging into that, let me just finish sure. off the biocom piece. In their credit, to their credit, FDA does make a few comments here that are, to your point, um, useful or actionable in a certain degree to our audience. One is FDA says, is saying that there's less emphasis on in vivo testing, whether it's a human or especially animal testing, and more and more emphasis on in vitro testing when it comes to biocompatibility. And that is true, but that's a trend that's been going on for, for quite a long time now. But most importantly, and this is one of the things that differentiates my approach to regulatory compared to so many others, is to me, when it comes to things like biocompatibility, this is absolutely not a regulatory decision. This is not a matter of following the ISO or the guidance and ticking off those boxes. To me, biocompatibility testing should be predicated on the engineering and on the biology, mm-hmm. not the uh, the regulation. Yep. So just wanted to make those two quick comments. Uh, any follow-up on that, John? Then we can move on to real-world evidence. Let's move on to the real-world evidence. Fine. So when it comes to real-world evidence, this is another area where I, uh, you know, another one of my favorites, so to speak, because I've been a huge fan of real-world evidence, along with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, for a very long time. For those of you in the audience who are not familiar, and we've done, I think, at least one podcast on this before, John, real-world evidence is looking at how our device is used while it's on the market, but not part of any clinical trial. So it's sort of a form of post-market surveillance, but it's what I call real-world post-market surveillance because we're taking an open, honest look at how the device is actually used in, in the real world, in real practice of medicine, not in a overly controlled, artificially contrived, randomized clinical trial or RCT. And so to put it in a slightly different way, you know, many people think of the RCT as the gold standard. I, in fact, do not because it is just not reflective of how we practice medicine in the real world. So real world evidence, not to be confused with real world data, but real world evidence is how our devices used in the real world. And the reason why I'm such a huge fan of this, John, is because, first of all, I think it's more realistic than clinical trial data. But more importantly, from an actionable perspective for our audience, it gives us wonderful opportunities to do, for example, label expansions to add different uses or different indications to our devices while they're on the market without underlying, without having to do a randomized clinical trial, uh, which, as you know, can be time-consuming and expensive and so on. So don't miss my message. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do clinical trials. On the contrary, if a clinical trial is necessary, then we should do it. But on the other hand, if we have a ton, and I've been in this situation with FDA many times before, John, if we already have a ton of information about how a device is used from real, uh, via real-world evidence, then why the heck should I have to waste time and money doing a clinical trial only to essentially gain the information that I already have? In other words, I'm not gaining anything new. So I just think it's a lot more efficient way, not just you know to do label expansions, but one other thing I'll mention real quick, John, since you asked me why this is my favorite, it also gives us an opportunity to get a new medical device onto the market here in the United States without 
necessarily doing a clinical trial. Why? Because in that podcast that you and I did some time ago, John, on real-world evidence, one of the things that I pointed out was it's real-world evidence. It's not real U.S. evidence. So what about this not-so-hypothetical possibility, John? If we take real-world evidence from outside the U.S. and use that as part of a submission to get a new device onto the market here in the U.S., why shouldn't we be able to do that? Well, long story short, after our podcast, John, I got a call from a senior policy advisor at FDA, won't mention who, but somebody pretty high in the FDA food chain, who said to me, Mike, I'd like to talk to you about this because, uh, you know, we never thought about this before. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk. We've talked now a few times about it. But I said, uh, uh, you know, I got to ask you a question. Will you give me the credit? And uh, she said, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I'm, so we I'm, are making progress in that direction. But uh, anyway. No, I'm, I'm uh, at the point where, well, sometimes the, my ego uh, gets the better of me. But, uh, you know, I, I try to accept that it's better that the good idea get implemented and not whether or not I get the credit for it. So I'll, there you go. I'll, I'll let you know how I'm doing uh, next week. I can have a completely different stance. As I look at this area of priorities, it seems like there's quite a few that you could kind of bundle or, or certainly make a Venn diagram and there's some overlap. And those that kind of jump out at me as being similar, sort of anyway, are real world evidence, clinical performance, clinical trial design, and patient input. Why, did, why do there need to be four different uh, focus areas or priority areas versus bundling these into one? That's a good question, John. I think that, um, and again, this is just, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, this is speculation since you asked me the question, but I'm happy to, to try to give you the best answer I can. On one hand, these are all very important topics individually. Yes, as you mentioned, they're related, but they're important individually, and therefore um, it does perhaps justify giving them individual attention. On the other hand, I can't help but raise the possibility, gee, maybe this is just a simple matter of we need we have a top 10 list. So we have to add these things up so that they add up to 10 as opposed to 12 or 6 or some other number. Yeah. Okay. So, so one could easily argue that some of these could be combined, but I don't think that's really uh, the important thing. It's not the number here that matters. It's, it's what they are. All right. So now maybe I'll go on the other extreme. Which item on this list is, is like got you saying, what the heck? Why why is this a priority? Are there? And I, I know that that's a... Uh, a dangerous question for me to ask, but I'm guessing you won't shy away from answering it. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I know if it, was, that it I... was a loaded question, Mike. So you know. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not sure that there's one here that I would necessarily disagree with, but I think that clearly, as you alluded to in your last question, some of these are more important than others. Let me let me talk about just a couple of them very very quickly. So sure. the number one on each of the list for the last three times that this report has been issued, and by the way, FDA does mention that these are not in in order of priority. So just because it's the number one on the list doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most important. And then it's leveraging big data for regulatory decision-making. This is something that we see a lot more on the drug side of the world, at least uh, compared to medical devices. But here's why I want to uh, bring it up, John, and for those in the audience that are not familiar with this, what we're talking about is, you know, data mining and collecting a lot of, you know, uh, tons and tons of data and then trying to look for patterns using, you know, mathematical analysis that might not be visually apparent to the naked eye. So the reason why I want to bring this up in the context of medical devices is because 
I think, and FDA doesn't really talk about it here, unfortunately, but I think the most powerful use of, of big data in the medical device world is being able to do much more sophisticated post-market surveillance. You and I both know, John, that post-market surveillance is, is, is all over the place now with the EU and even in the U.S., but the way we can do much better post-market surveillance using big data and data mining is most of the problems that we identify today with post-market surveillance are limited to a particular device. But what about problems, for example, when two devices are used together or when a device is used with a drug or when a particular device is used in certain types of patients or subgroups of the population, those kinds of problems, it's not impossible to find those kind of problems with um, the traditional approach to post-market surveillance, but it's much, much more difficult. And so I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, John, uh, but I think that uh, using big data or data mining to find these kinds of um, more subtle problems, in other words, problems that don't involve just a single product, but maybe a certain combination of products or a product and used in a certain population. I think that uh, data mining in those cases could take post-market surveillance to a whole new level. What do you think, John? Uh, for sure. I mean, uh, the... Um I mean, there's lots of uh, obstacles and landmines, of course, and I don't know that we'll dive into all those today's and uh, or today in order to, to to be effective at that. But I, I think that's that's the hope for future as medical device professionals as being able to to learn about what's already happening with other similar products or even my own products that are out there and building in. Um, you know the modeling in a way that gives me proactive um, data and information that I can get ahead of something before it becomes an issue. I think that's the, to your point. I think that's the real big opportunity. And uh, I, I guess I'm curious too on this big data. Do you think that this probably includes uh, like products that have AI or systems that are leveraging AI and machine learning? I mean, that's I guess that's sort of. Uh, I don't want to be assumptive about that, but that I, I kind of gather that that's part of this as well. Well, uh, another of the priorities that FDI identifies, John, is in the area of digital health and cybersecurity, and they also mention artificial intelligence, yeah. of course, along along those lines. Look, any device that is capable of collecting information and then, uh, you know, reporting or tracking that information, whether that's artificial intelligence or not. Um, that would, in my opinion, go under the umbrella of, of uh, big, you know, big data or data sure. data mining. But I think personally, and we've talked about this also in a different podcast, John. Um, as a matter of fact, I think our artificial intelligence pro um, uh, podcast, I'm told by my Greenlight Guru friends, uh, was the number one listened to podcast in 2019. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, but. To me, I think a lot of people are using that phrase, artificial intelligence, um, mm. let's put it this way, uh, very, very loosely. Yeah. And most of the products that, uh, that I see that people say that have artificial intelligence really doesn't. For those in the audience that are interested, I would encourage you to, to listen to that particular podcast for, for more explanation. But back to your comment about big data, John, um, and, and any device or any person using the device that collects information and uh, and reports that to some sort of a database or something, um, I think would fit under that umbrella. 
I mean, it's, it's almost, um, in some respects, you know, if a, a sort of a call to action, I think the industry, I, um, in my mind, it seems like one of the big obstacles is, okay, I have a product that has the ability to collect data and report it somewhere. Where is it going to go? You know, um, is there some database or some, some source of information that where I can feed that to? And it, and, I'm not intimately aware of all these. I know, you know, some of the challenges in the EU with the uh, the highly anticipated Udemed and, and those sorts of things. And of course, FDA has mod for, for the adverse event side of things. But we're not just talking about adverse event. We're talking about stuff, you know, just information. It doesn't always have to be the bad stuff. And where would it go? Correct, John. It, it does not have to be the bad stuff. In fact, it could be the good stuff. And not to get, you know, too deep into the weeds of artificial intelligence, but let me just briefly explain why I say um, that AI is an is a all-too-overly-used phrase. What you just described, <clears throat> a device's ability to collect information and report it to wherever it is that it's going to go, what you just described, that's a very passive process. And to me, that's not uh, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence would be taking it one step further. In other words, the device not just collecting that information, but then using that information and taking action on it to either modify what it's doing to a patient, maybe if it's an electrocauterizer, for example, and the um, – I'm going to get a little engineering-oriented here, John. I mean, but you're allowed. The, you, have a, you have a few engineering <laughs> degrees, so go for it. <laughs> but if, if, if the uh, surgeon is using a cauterizer and it's not cutting through the tissue properly and, uh, and the device is measuring the impedance and the impedance starts to go up, Instead of the surgeon cranking up the current to be able to cut through, the device using artificial intelligence cranks the, the current up so that the physician or the surgeon doesn't have to think about it. That would be an, an example of um, artificial intelligence, John. But as you can imagine, that creates all kinds of regulatory oh, yeah. challenges, which, which we won't get into here. Yeah. Um, all right. So... I guess going back to a, a sort of a philosophical question that I, I posed a moment ago that we didn't dive into just yet, but I'm a med device professional. I read these CDRH regulatory science priorities. So what? What what is this information? Good for? How should I? Just good to know. Is it something that I should incorporate into my business? Should I change my behavior? Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question, John. And look, my intention here today or in any of our discussions is not to bash the FDA because I think there's entirely too much of that. However, that was one of the things that, quite frankly, I was very disappointed in this report. And it's not a standalone report. I mean, this is now at least the third generation. FDA was asked to start doing this back in, 20, in 2011. So we are now, what, nine years, almost 10 years into this process, um, at least in this report. And this is a very high-level report, so it's not supposed to be very detailed. There's very, very little in here that's actually actionable that somebody can actually write, uh, you know, sit down and read and start using in their job this afternoon. Now, perhaps in FDA's defense, it was not designed to be actionable, but I would have liked to see in some of the bullets in this report a little more specific information, whether we're talking about computational modeling, whether we're talking about digital health, whether we're talking about uh, hospital-acquired uh, infections or any of these 10 priorities, there are sweeping generalizations in here that, um, 
you know, they sound nice and probably make the, the politicians at FDA happy because we're, we're ticking this box that Congress asked us to do. But from the pragmatic industry perspective, John, that you just reminded us of, um, regrettably, there's not a lot of a, a lot of information. That said, I do think it's it's valuable for those in our audience to skim through this report. It's only a, a dozen pages, and you can probably skim through it in in you know 15 minutes if you read slow um, to to at least be aware of what's in there. And then for so for, it, it, it might you know in a positive note, John, it might cause a trigger in somebody's mind to click to look for more information, whether it's on, uh, you know, dealing with infections or precision medicine, you know, might say, gee, this is a priority to FDA. I don't really know a lot about this myself. Maybe I should dig into it further and educate it myself so that maybe it might be applicable to a device that I'm working on now or perhaps in the future. So I'm trying to put, you know, a positive spin on it. And at the same time, I'm trying to offer feedback to our FDA friends. I know, you know, there are a number of uh, my FDA friends who listen to our podcast, John, although I'm sure they would never in a million years admit to it publicly. So for those in the agency that are listening, you know, we appreciate your priorities. We would just like to hear a little more um, further thoughts and analysis uh, uh, so that they can be a little more uh, usable. <laughs> you know, pardon the pun, uh, but uh, but 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 usable for us in the in the real world of the day to day tranches. Because from a usability perspective, John, I don't think this would uh, uh, pass pass the mustard in terms of being a usable document. It is very high level. It doesn't give me as a, a med device professional anything that's really actionable. Um, you know, or, or I don't have any you know, clear direction on, you know, so what, what, what should I be doing differently or, or even what am I doing wrong or what is the agency expecting that, that uh, maybe we as an industry are not doing? I mean, it's, it's we're postulating uh, a bit, you know, like we let off about reprocessing and human factors not making the list this time around. Um, does that imply that, that um, the industry is doing what we are, should be doing on those particular topics. And, and uh, I, I think as you very well stated, uh, neither you nor I, frankly, are that naive to think that, that we've uh, hit some sort of magic threshold and now everything is you know rainbows and unicorns. But uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> getting a little bit more insights as to you know, why, I'm sure this, somebody at CDRH or some, quite a few people actually spent a lot of time putting this together. Uh, personally, I, knowing a little bit more of the why behind it would actually help inform me as, as a med device professional. Well, before we wrap this up, John, let me offer two more suggestions. Um, because as I just said to one of my customers this morning, uh, companies pay me to solve problems and not make excuses. Uh, and my intent here is not to bash on the FDA, but let me make a couple more suggestions. Uh, you reiterated the two things that are not on this list that were in the previous uh, reports, the reprocessing and human factors. It would be nice for FDA to offer some explanation as to why they think those are no longer um, priorities. Is it that they think that we've done a good job, a good enough job as an industry of dealing with the reprocessing and human factor problem? It's possible. I, I put, would not say that myself, but it's possible. Or is it simply, as I said earlier, we've got to you know, get the, the total number of priorities to add up to 10. And so we have to add or drop you know, to make that happen. So that's one, to, 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 to just to, to, to explain 
why certain things are no longer priorities. Uh, and then let's get off the FDA side of the table, John, and let's talk about industry. Obviously, we have a lot of folks in our industry listening to, to our podcast, and John and I are both very grateful to that. Why doesn't industry come out with their own version of this top 10 list to say what we think are the top 10 priorities from a regulatory perspective. And then we kind of compare our top 10 list to FDA's top 10 list. And for the ones that we're in agreement upon, then great, we can have a discussion as to how we can best address them. For the ones that uh, that are different, you know, why is it that FDA sees one priority that we don't? Or alternatively, why is it that, that, that industry sees a priority that FDA does not? You know, everybody talks about enhancing communication between industry and FDA, uh, and I'm all in favor of that. But you know what, John? Talk is cheap. And although I hear a lot of people talking uh, from companies when they go into the FDA, I don't hear a lot of actual communicating. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give some suggestions as to how to to stimulate, not just for talking, because we've got a lot of talking going on, but actual communication. What do you think about that, John? Is this just more uh, uh, unicorns and uh, <laughs> <open> everything? <laughs> uh, rainbows and unicorns. Um, rainbows and unicorns. Nah, maybe. Uh, I, you know, I like the idea. Um, and then I immediately, you know, give you, I, I can immediately think of the 38 reasons why it wouldn't work. Um, but that's maybe, maybe I shouldn't uh, have that sort of mindset. I mean, could multiple medical device companies get together and present this sort of thing? You know, is this like a, could this be right, wrong, or indifferent? I'm not asking your opinion about Avamed, but could this be something that like an organization like Avamed or the Medical Device Manufacturers Association or, or some other entity where medical device companies are members of, could they come up with their own? It's, it's an interesting concept. I think that would be a wonderful suggestion, John, for, for our industry association groups like the ones that you just mentioned to, uh, to spearhead that um, rather than simply lobbying Congress or, you know, getting out and saying, oh, the world is perfect and we don't need to change anything. I think this would be a very good way. They could, they could survey their membership. They could, uh, they could summarize the results and we could have a, an intelligent discussion, yeah, you know, actual real sure. communication as to what we're doing well and how we can improve. Absolutely. So before we wrap things up today, any final thoughts? I mean, I, it feels like a pretty good suggestion for those listening, maybe we need to do more from an industry perspective and instead of always waiting to see what uh, FDA and other regulatory bodies think are our priorities. Uh, any other uh, thoughts that you want to leave the audience with today? Well, to that last point, John, I could not agree with you more. As a matter of fact, industry can take this sort of a challenge as a challenge. In other words, FDA has now over the last several years put out their priority list. Where is industry's response. Perhaps there has been a response somewhere. I don't know if there was. I haven't seen it. But this is a challenge to us to come up with our own priorities and then let's sit down and have a dialogue about them. Perhaps that might be rainbows and unicorns, but you know what? <laughs> the, uh, the world will never be a better place if we don't at least try. <laughs> Just saying that reminded me of this terrible joke I heard, uh, and and I don't want to set a precedent, but it's it's so funny that I I'll I'll tell the bad joke, or as my kids say, the dad joke. Mike, do you know what Be kind careful, of? Careful, John. We are being recorded. No, this is all right. It's, it's <laughs> definitely rated G. So, do you know what kind of home uh, leprechauns live in? What kind of a home do leprechauns live in, John? Leprechondos. 
Leprechaun. <laughs> it's so bad, but I'm keeping it in. So okay. Anyway. Thanks for okay. <laughs> uh, thanks for humor humoring me, uh, folks. Uh, I'll, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, uh, we'll share the links to the CDRH regulatory science priorities uh, and the, the you know the, as Mike said the twelve page or so report. Pretty quick read, good information. Is it actionable? Uh, well, that's up for for you to determine and to debate amongst your colleagues, but still good information to get a you know finger on the pulse of what's happening in our world so thank you so much folks keep listening to the global medical device podcast i think i heard some statistic that in 2019 there were over 120,000 listens uh, on the global medical device podcast or something like that so uh keep spreading the word uh there's a reason that uh, this is the number one podcast in the medical device industry so share that and uh certainly folks if you're in the need for a little bit of help on figuring out how to navigate all these challenges and obstacles and changes from a regulation perspective, whether you're in the U.S. or Canada or EU. It doesn't matter. Frankly, it doesn't matter in the world. Greenlight Guru, uh, we have the only medical device QMS software solution on the market. We've designed it specifically and only for the medical device industry. So we're here to help. Go learn more at www.greenlight.guru. As always, uh, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.